0: You're listening to the Seabreeze Church Podcast. All right, well, hey, it's good to see you guys this morning. As Elliot said, my name is Ethan. I'm the family pastor here. Um, now, when I was a kid, I grew up in a small town called Pioneer, California. Probably never heard of it. 2,000 people. Um, it was up in the mountains and kind of where in the northern California where the foothills meet the actual mountains. That's where That's where I grew up. So it was a great place to grow up and be a kid. One of the cool things about growing up there is that our house, our yard, kind of backed up to these dense woods. So there were these dense woods at the back of our yard. I had a lot of freedom as a kid to just play out there, play in the woods. But one thing that my parents warned me about, they warned me about poison oak. That was a thing up there. And so my dad, he, like, he talked to me about it. He explained to me what poison oak is. We went, he like found some, he showed leaves of three, let it be. I learned that little thing. So I knew what poison oak was. Um, and he told me what it would do to me if I touched it, if I, if I came into contact with it. Um, uh, my dad loves me, and so I believed him. Uh, I didn't think that he was lying to me. I didn't think that he had anything other than my best interest in mind. So I actually believed that my dad was telling me the truth about poison oak. But that didn't mean that I took him very seriously. So you can see where this is going. Um, I'm not sure if I thought that, you know, maybe I would just get lucky. I'd be the kid that didn't, would just not pay attention, and I'd be fine for whatever reason. Or maybe I thought that, you know, if I actually did get poison oak, it wouldn't really be that bad. Maybe it was a little exaggerated, the consequences of that. So uh, whatever the reason was, I took a pretty nonchalant attitude toward poison oak. Uh, So I had a nonchalant attitude toward poison oak until this day of my life. Um... So this is what a 10-year-old, a 10-year-old Ethan who doesn't take poison oak seriously looks like. Let's just go ahead and get this off the screen. No one wants to look at this anymore. Let's, let's get rid of that, okay? Um, so from this day on, I begin to take poison oak very seriously. My wife, my kids will tell you that if we go camping or we're going hiking, I'm, I'm borderline paranoid or maybe, maybe um, just kind of Hyperobservant is maybe a better way to say it. So I'm always on the lookout for poison oak. I take it very seriously. The reason is that I am I am convinced that the consequences of poison oak are absolutely real. Now we're, today we're in a series called From True to Real. So we're talking about this idea of real. What is real? What is what is true? Uh, true and real. These are very very similar categories. They're similar, but they're very distinct categories of truth. And everything that we believe to be true, we believe that we put it in one of these two categories, true or real. If I just believe that something is, is true, then I believe the facts about it to be correct. I believe the facts about it, but those facts, they don't necessarily affect my daily life. They don't require any change from me or my decisions or my behavior. Um, if I believe that something is real, on the other hand, well, not only do I believe the facts about that thing to be true, but I actually believe that it has consequences in real life. For good or for bad. So if something is real to me, then I believe it strongly enough to actually adapt my behavior, change decisions and, and, and the way I go about things. So if something's just true, I just play in the woods, don't worry about poison oak. If poison oak is actually real to me, I'm on the lookout, I change my behavior accordingly to, to meet that belief. Now, our guide for this series that we're in is the book of 1 John. We're kind of working our way through the book of 1 John. And today's passage from 1 John is on the topic of sin. So today we're going to talk about getting real with sin. But before we get real with sin, I want to take a minute, I want us to get clear on what sin actually is. So the simplest understanding of what sin is, is that sin is rebellion against God. Sin is rebellion against God. It's choosing to do things our own way instead of God's way, and this is something that we're all guilty of. And the consequence of this rebellion is that it cuts us off from a relationship with God, and that's a big deal uh, because, as we read about here in the book of First John, God is light. Here's what we read in John 1, 5, one John one five: God is light. In Him there is no darkness at all. So God is light, and as light, He is the source of everything that is good, everything that is right, everything that is beautiful everything that is true. And so and to be in rebellion against this God is to be cut off from that light. Now, to be cut off and to be separated from God in this lifetime, that's, that's tragic. That's tragedy enough. But to be cut off and separated from this God for an eternity of eternal gloom, eternal darkness, um, man, that's, that's, that's a whole other level. Now, thankfully, despite our rebellion, God has not abandoned us To this darkness he's not left us out there he loved us enough to send jesus to come to earth jesus lived a life without sin and he died a death on a cross even though he had not sinned and he died on the cross the reason is to endure the darkness that we had all deserved he allowed himself to be cut off from god separated from god in the darkness he allowed himself to endure what we deserved so that he could offer to restore our relationship to god so that we could spend an eternity with god in the light. But then how does this transfer, for any of us, how does this transfer from darkness into light? How does that take place? Well, it happens when we confess our rebellion, when we ask for forgiveness, and we commit to follow Jesus as the boss of our life. We read about this in uh, chapter 1, verse 9, where it says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Now this is an interesting thing to read here in this book of 1 John. Uh, The reason is that 1 John, it's written by the apostle John who had actually lived and walked and knew Jesus. It's written by him to a group of people who, who have already done this. They've already confessed their sin. They've already received this forgiveness from Jesus and now they're following him. And so if this is true, if this is the case, then why does John bother to write about sin? If their sin has been forgiven, and they've been saved from eternal darkness. They've been brought out into light. What more is there to talk about at this point? Why is he continuing to bring up this topic? Well, John knows, John knows something. He knows that the consequence of sin, it's not limited just to an eternity in hell. And so what he's doing is he's warning them. He's warning them about the ongoing harm, damage, and waste that sin can cause. So like my dad warning me about poison oak, he wants to spare them the pain. He wants to spare them the misery of walking in sin. And so to do this, he uses this, this imagery. He uses an imagery of light and darkness. Specifically, he talks about walking in the light versus walking in darkness. We read in ch- uh, verses six and seven, he says, but if we say that we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So in this passage here, and then in surrounding passages, he describes, he explains what it is to be walking in darkness, and he explains the consequences of walking in darkness. And then, for those who really believe that those consequences are real, he offers a lot of hope. He offers hope in the form of practical direction for how to walk in the light. So we're going to look at darkness, we're going to look at light, we'll start off by looking at darkness. What does it mean to walk in darkness? Darkness. When we're talking about darkness, we're talking about the environment in which sin thrives. Sin thrives in the darkness. Now, any environment is gonna be made up of various conditions that are necessary in order to sustain that environment. And then different things are gonna thrive, more or less, in different environments. Uh, Recently, my family, we purchased this environment. This is a terrarium, and you would never guess what it's for. This is for jumping spiders, right? So those little spiders you see around your house, jumping around, you go to catch them and they jump over here. This is a terrarium for jumping spiders. When you uh, live in the city, you have to be creative about what pets you get your kids. So, We've had three jumping spiders so far. Their names have been garlic, ginger, and sugar. Um, Apparently, my kids are really into spices. Um, It turns out that if you want to have a pet jumping spider, and you want your pet jumping spider to survive, you actually need to create an environment that's kind of unique toward jumping spiders. So we got this little terrarium, this little environment, so that garlic, ginger, and sugar, they can thrive in that environment. Now, similarly, there are conditions that we create in our lives that permit sin to thrive or to not thrive. And we're going to take a look at those conditions, what they are. But first, it's worth worth asking, why would we want to create those conditions? Or why do we ever create those conditions where sin can thrive in our lives? As followers of Jesus, isn't that what we've been saved from? We've been saved from darkness, from sin. Why would we want to create conditions to go back and to allow that to thrive in our life? Well, the problem is, yes, we have been saved. But this appetite for sin still lingers on. It still lingers in our lives. And so, although we love God, sometimes we wonder, can I can I have both? Can I have God? Can I have this relationship with God? And can I still have a little bit of this sin? Can these two things coexist? And we think that maybe if we, we follow God with with most of our lives, but we kind of carve out this little pocket, this little pocket of darkness where sin can exist, then maybe we can have it both ways. Maybe we can follow God, but we can keep on. This little area of darkness in our lives, and maybe have it both ways. Now, in uh, in two thousand three, there's an advertising company called R and R Partners, and they wrote one of the most successful tourism slogans of all time. And we all know what it is. They wrote, "What happens in Vegas stays in Vegas." Right? Uh, we all know what that is. And now, in many ways, Las Vegas—it's a city that's has a lot in common with with our city, so I'm not here to pick on Las Vegas. But I think that the reason that this marketing campaign has been so successful is that it's actually advertising exactly what people want. It's advertising darkness. That's what it's all about. It's saying, we have darkness here. We have secrecy. We have indulgence. and, And the best part is, your sin stays here. It doesn't go home with you. So this campaign it's wildly successful because it's selling what people are looking for. It's selling darkness, concealment, and cover. But we all know that you don't, have to cro- you don't have to go to Nevada, you don't have to cross a state border in order to find concealment and cover for your sin. We're all very capable of walking in darkness right where we all live. And so what are these conditions then? What are the conditions that create an environment where sin can thrive in our lives? What are they, and then how do we recognize them? Now, the first of those conditions is deception. That's what we see here. The first condition of darkness is deception. Deception, what it does is it provides cover for sin, and, and it is sin itself. Uh, notice when we read this passage here, notice how intertwined deception is with sin and darkness in these verses. Verse 6, we read, If we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in darkness, we lie. We don't practice the truth. We don't live out the truth. Verse eight: If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. Verse ten: If we claim that we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar. That is God, and his word is not in us. So each of these three statements here, verses six, eight, and ten, they start off with this kind of false claim toward innocence. We read we have fellowship with him, or we are without sin, uh, we we have not sinned. So it starts with this false claim of our innocence. And then it ends with this disconnect between that claim and God's word. So we lie. We do not practice the truth. We deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. We make him out to be a liar. His word, it's not in us. And then as we look closer at these three things, we we actually see three distinct types of deception at play here. The first of those is duplicity. If we claim we have fellowship with him, yet walk in darkness, we lie. We do not live out the truth. So here, here we're claiming one thing. We're claiming fellowship with God, but we live out something entirely different. Claiming fellowship with God, living out something different. And duplicity is a strategy that's necessary when my talk and my walk, they don't match. They don't go together. Duplicity is necessary if I want you to think one thing about me, but that thing actually is not true. Um, it's a strategy that allows me to fool you about who I am and what I'm up to. But duplicity is actually a very uncomfortable thing. Have you ever been in that spot where you know that you're presenting something that's not consistent with reality? I know that we've all been in that spot before. It's a very uncomfortable place to be. And what it does is it really grinds on our conscience. And so, the second strategy comes into play, and that is delusion. And rather than live with the hypocrisy, we try to assuage that guilt through delusion or as John says here we deceive ourselves he says if we claim to be without sin we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us so we do this when we attempt to justify our sin or we attempt to rationalize or or explain away our sin in some way or another and in doing so we're claiming to be without sin and this time we're not doing it to deceive or fool each other now I'm trying to fool myself so delusion The last one is denial. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him, as God, out to be a liar, and his word is not in us. So this is the most brazen deception right here. Here, what we're doing, this is an attempt, not an attempt to, to rationalize our sin, not an attempt to justify our sin. This is a straightforward denial that what God says about sin is actually true. The implication is I say one thing is true about sin, God says something different is true, I think I'm right, so God must be a liar. That's what's going on here. Now, all of this, this hypocrisy, the this self-delusion, this disagreement with God, this actually requires a lot of work. This is exhausting stuff. And so eventually, maintaining this level of, of deception, this, this grows tiresome. And at some point, we discover that avoidance is actually far easier than lying. And that brings us to the second ideal condition for sin, and that is isolation. Isolation is where we begin to withdraw. I'm getting tired of lying. I'm getting tired of keeping this game up. It's much easier just for me to take a step back and we withdraw, not just from God, but from God's people. In verse 7 we read, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. So here in verse 7 we see that John, he's linking this idea of walking in the light to fellowship. With one another. And as we saw last week, we ran across this word fellowship in her passage last week. We saw that it means to partake in something together, or it means to, to partner together in something, or to, to share something. So in the church, what this means for us is it's actually really cool. It means that we have a mission that we share together, we partake in that mission together, and we actually partner together to accomplish that mission. But then along the way, we're sharing life with one another, we're sharing successes along the way. We're sharing struggles. We, we mourn when that's appropriate together. We, we share in mourning. We share in joy, all while accomplishing this mission that God has given us. So fellowship, this is a, this is a really amazing thing. However, if, if you desire to harbor a what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas little corner of your life, then you're going to find that nothing is more threatening to that desire than this idea of fellowship. If you have a desire that you want to protect, then all of a sudden fellowship, this becomes an unwelcome thing. It becomes almost an obnoxious thing, kind of of bitter to us as opposed to a good thing. So when you have this sinful desire you want to protect, it becomes expedient to kind of drift away from fellowship and drift toward isolation. Proverbs 18.1 says this really well. It captures this, this, this idea brilliantly. It says, whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. He breaks out against all sound judgment. Now, I I experience this pull to isolation a lot. Um, One of the times that I experience it is anytime I get sideways or I get in some kind of disagreement with my wife right before I'm about to come to church or right before I'm about to come to some kind of church event, or spend time with any one of you. Um, When that happens, what I want to do in those situations is I just want to isolate myself so I can avoid all of you. Um, And the reason I want to do that is because I just want to stay mad. I want to stay upset. And I know that if I'm around you, I've learned this from experience, if I'm around you, God is going to use that fellowship to pull me back toward the light. He's going to use that fellowship to to prompt me to humble myself, to deal with my sin, and actually clear things up with my wife. Sometimes I just don't want to do that. Um, And so I'm actually really grateful for you. Um, I'm grateful that time and time again, God has used you to help me do what I don't want to do. He's used you to help pull me back out of darkness and put me back in the light. It's you, it's the fellowship of being with you and living our lives together that makes that possible. And so, so far we've seen, talking about darkness, we've seen that um, walking in darkness, it involves these two things. It involves isolation and it involves deception. Uh, we're gonna turn our attention now to walking in the light. And as we do that, we're gonna see that walking in the light involves living an open and an honest life. And we're gonna see two conditions that help us create this environment, this open and honest environment. The first of those conditions is confession. Confession. Uh, we read earlier about confession and we saw that it opens the door to a relationship with Jesus, uh, with God through Jesus. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. But confessing sin, confession, isn't just a one and done activity in the Christian life. It's an ongoing part of walking with God that shows up actually in daily life. But then why would this actually be necessary? If, if God knows already our sin, which he does, and if he's forgiven us of our sin, which he has, then why bother confessing to him what he already knows and has already forgiven? Well, confession is necessary because It is an act of speaking truth. When I'm confessing something to God, I'm speaking truth. I am agreeing with him about my sin, and I'm admitting that he is the one who's right about my sin, not me. So confession is an act of speaking truth. And when we do this, it's like shining this giant mag light into the darkness caused by deception. And when we confess the darkness, it just has no place to hide. It has nowhere to go. It must yield to this light of truth that we're shining on it. But if we, confe- if we agree, if we agree that confession is important, which I'm assuming that we all do, I'm going to operate on the assumption that we all agree that confession is an important thing. So if we agree on that, how do you actually go about doing it? what does that look like? Well, let's just walk through, I want to walk through practically, what does it look like? What are some steps of confe- confessing sin to God? So let's walk through this. Um, for me, well, the first thing on the list here is to aim for daily. OK? This is the first part. Of confession with God. Now, in an ideal circumstances, we would always be confessing right after we sin. We would sin, and we would recognize that, immediately follow that up, confess that to God. That doesn't always happen. That's not always reality. And so, in in lieu of confessing immediately, I found that confessing sin daily is really a great practice. And I've also found that confessing sin daily is not too frequent. Uh, The reason for that is that I sin every day, and so when I go to confess something, there's almost always something that I have to confess. I try to do this before, uh, just make it a part of my normal quiet time in the morning, my normal time that I spend with God, um, either after reading the Bible or before reading the Bible. Realistically, it probably happens about four times a week. So I try to include this every day when I'm reading the Bible, realistically, because you know, one of my kids wakes up early or something like that. I probably get around to it about four times a week. So you want to aim for daily. Aim for daily and then ask for clarity. So ask God to show you any area where you have sinned. I usually say something very simple like this. I say, God, if there's any area where I've sinned, please show that to me. Help me see any area where I've sinned. Please bring it to mind. And then I'll wait for a few moments. And notice I said moments, not minutes. This is not waiting 10 minutes, not even waiting one minute. But just given a few moments, and seeing if God brings anything to mind. And usually, he brings something very specific to mind. Uh, Sometimes he doesn't. There are times when he doesn't bring anything to mind, and when that happens, I try to resist the urge to just make something up or to get hung up on some vague feeling of guilt or some general guilt without a specific thing to confess behind it. If God is convicting you of sin, look for something specific, not something vague or something general. Look for something specific. So ask for clarity and then agree with him. Once God brings that clarity, agree with him that what he brought to mind was wrong. Actually name that sin, whether it's anger, lying, laziness, lust, or pride, whatever it is, give it a name and call it sin. And that's an act of agreeing with God. This is a direct attack on the deception of walking in darkness. Instead of deluding yourself or calling God a liar, when we agree with God, We're humbling ourselves. We're admitting that he is right. Uh, Next, ask for next steps. Part of confession is repentance. It's turning from that sin. And this means that you act to actually make changes or to make things right. Uh, When I pray and ask God for next steps, more often than not, what he brings to mind is maybe a relationship that I need to clear up. I need to ask for forgiveness or maybe a change of a habit that I formed that he wants me to, to, to make a change to. Uh, And then lastly, thank him. And don't skip this last step. Thank him. Uh, If you're a follower of Jesus, he's already forgiven you. And so you can thank him for that, and you can move forward with confidence because he's forgiven you in Jesus. So thank him. Uh, Confessing sin to God, this drives back darkness by fighting deception. But confession doesn't just fight against deception. It also fights against isolation, like we talked about earlier. But doing that requires not just confessing sin to God, it actually requires confessing sin to each other. Now, not every sin that you confess to God is something that you need to confess to someone else. But in general, if you find yourself stuck, if you find yourself stuck, or if you find that you're carrying a secret sin that nobody knows about, that you've been hiding in the shadows, well, those are good indicators that it's time to take the initiative and find a trusted person that you can really be honest with and confess that sin, and in doing so, take a step from the darkness out into the light. I think it's worth calling that what it is. That is a hard thing to do. That is a difficult thing. Uh, when I've done this in the past, I've just been so nervous that I feel sick. I feel like I'm going to throw up going to someone to confess a sin. And it's not even, it doesn't even have to be something huge. It could be a seemingly small sin, and I just get nervous. I don't want to go talk about my sin with another person. I get nervous to do it. It's a difficult thing to do, but it's an extremely important step to take. And so let's talk about this too, just practically, how do you confess sin to others? What are the steps that you can take to do that? Uh, one is you want to choose wisely. Choose wisely. Look for someone who's a trusted person, who's walking with God, who, um, who has a wise pattern of living, and look for someone who's not a blabbermouth, someone that you can really trust these things with, and you know that they're not going to talk to others about it. Choose wisely and then commit, uh, whether it's making a phone call or whether it's sending a text that says, hey, can I talk to you about something later today? Or hey, I need to talk to you about something. When can, we, when can When can I give you a call or when can we meet up and talk? In other words, what you want to do is commit. You want to take courage. You want to take initiative. And then just like with God, Name the sin. Name what it was and call it sin. And then lastly, ask for prayer. One of the great problems with secrecy is that it deprives us of prayer. Other people can't pray for something in our life if they don't know about it. And so once you've confessed, that's no longer the case. You can ask for prayer. Uh, This is something that I've never regretted doing, in fact, I usually regret not having done it sooner. And so if you're on the fence about whether or not to confess something to another person, then I would encourage you to err on the side of being open and being honest. Now, confession, this is crucial for walking in the light. Um, confession, though, always occurs after the sin, right? If you sin, you confess afterward. Uh, there's another key category that helps us avoid sin on the front end that we're going to look at, and that is accountability. So earlier, we saw how fellowship with one another is a mark of walking in the light. One of the ways that fellowship with one another helps us walk in the light is by allowing us to live an accountable lifestyle, a lifestyle of accountability. Now, last year, we, uh, we built this kids' building right across the way over here. And as we were building the kids' building, one of the things that we did is, got to the time where it's okay, we're gonna put security cameras throughout this building, throughout the interior. And when it came to placing those cameras, they weren't just placed up there willy-nilly or kinda random. They were placed up there in a very deliberate way. And the way that they are placed is to eliminate blind spots. And so, in theory, there's nowhere in the classrooms or in the halls of that kids' building where there are blind spots. Everywhere you go in that area, you're gonna be on camera um, throughout that whole building. And so in today's society, this is not a novel idea. This is actually kind of a no-brainer in today's society. It's just what you do. Um, And the reason is, it provides accountability. It keeps volunteers, it keeps kids safe because there's no blind spots. And so it's easy to know, though, in a building with security cameras, if you have blind spots. You just go look at the camera and you figure it out. Even this week, I was, went into the kids' building and there were some guys in there and they, were finding, they realized we had some blind spots. They were making some adjustments to the camera. It's a very easy thing to do with a building. But how do you know if you have blind spots in your own life? That is, how do you know if you have areas of your life where sin could occur and really no one would be the wiser, wiser? No one would know that it's there. Um, to do that, You can take inventory, you can take inventory of your life by just asking a few simple questions. You can ask, who knows me well enough to actually ask me about the things I struggle with the most? Is there anyone who knows me well enough to to ask me about the things I really struggle with? Or another question would be, if I were to fall off the map, who would come looking for me? Would anyone come looking for me? If so, how long would it take? Would it be days, weeks, months? Would people come looking for me if I really wandered off into an area of sin? Uh, Are there areas of my life that I really don't want my church friends to know about? Where if I think about this area of my life and my church friends, I really want them to stay separate. I don't want these people to know about these things. And if, as you ask these questions, some blind spots begin to emerge, what you can do is you can ask yourself, what can I do to introduce fellowship into this area of my life? How can I include others in this high-risk area of my life? Now, a special accountability challenge that we face today that really needs to not be overlooked is our Internet access, right? Uh, We all have instant and anonymous access to whatever brand of darkness is most tempting to us. And that means that none of us can claim to live an accountable lifestyle unless that includes digital, digital accountability as well. Now, thankfully, There are lots of great apps out there that can help you do this. You can download apps that can help you include others so you can have accountability in what you do online as well. Uh, One of the ways that I've created digital accountability in my life is I've swapped out my old smartphone for this little guy. Um, (laughs) People tell me it looks like a pager, and honestly, that's not too far from the truth. Um, All this does is it just texts, it just calls, and it has a calculator on it. So um, it's kind of an interesting little thing. And actually, I hesitated to share that with you all because I realized that this doesn't work for everyone. Um, And part of it is that I think there's an aspect of my personality that just kind of enjoys minimalism and thinks that stuff is kind of fun. So that helps it work for me. But I realize that doesn't work for everybody. Um, But I do share it with you because I think it's important for us to realize that creating an accountable lifestyle, it's important enough that it's worth thinking outside the box. It's worth thinking creatively and thinking outside the box about how do we do this. The stakes on this are actually very high. And so if you're thinking that creating an accountable lifestyle is something that's just not possible in your circumstances, well, I would just gently push back on that and encourage you and challenge you to really think creatively about how to make that happen. Now, this passage we've been looking at, this section of scripture, it's really a passage of hope. It's a passage of hope, but it's a passage of hope, not for everybody. It's a passage of hope for those who believe that sin is real and are willing to do something about it. And so if there's an area of your life, big or small, where you find yourself kind of sneaking around, covering your tracks or hiding in the shadows, then I invite you today to step out into the light and start by confessing sin to God, confessing sin to others, and then stay in the light. Remain there. Do that by by leaning into the relationships that you have at church and building an accountable lifestyle. And then when sin creeps its way back in, which it will, which it does, don't retreat in isolation, don't cover it up. Instead, confess all over again and thank God for his grace in your life. Uh, I want to wrap up this morning by reading from John, uh, 1 John 2, 1 through 2, where John actually tells us about why he's writing this in the first place. He says, my dear children... I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now in the end, this is all about Jesus. Jesus is the one that makes all of this possible for us. He's the one who sacrificed. He's the one who plucked us out of darkness into light. He's the one who draws us back into the light when we wander away, and it's because of him that we have this hope, that we have confidence, and it's because of him that we have forgiveness. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you have not abandoned us to the darkness. Uh, You came looking for us, and you found us at great cost and great expense to yourself, and so we thank you, God, that you you have plucked us out of darkness and brought us into light. We know what it is like to have a relationship with you, and God, I just I ask that, knowing what it's like and tasting a relationship with you, that we wouldn't go back to something that is less. And when we do drift, God, we pray that you would, um, that you would you would call us back to yourself. I pray that you would use the people in this room to help each other. In this God, I pray that you would help us to be people who are confident, to be honest with each other, and live open and honest lives. And that the result of that would actually be joy in you for us and for our kids and for those that we know and relate with each day, of God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Seabreeze Church podcast. For more information about our church, you can visit our website, seabreezechurch.com. Thanks again for listening in, and we hope you'll join us next week for the Seabreeze Church podcast.